Hello, my name is Steve Pretty. I am a musician, composer and performer from London. Welcome to my podcast, Steve Pretty on the Origin of the Pieces. This is the show that helps you to hear and to understand music in new ways. I hope you're doing well. It's lovely to be back again. Um, Really enjoyed the last episode and have had lots of lovely feedback about that. Um, We had a kind of impromptu Nordic special. Uh, I talked about some of the young people I've been working with up in northern Norway, doing that fantastic creative project, creating and composing and performing music up there with them. And we had a kind of audio tour of that beautiful grand piano that was in the studio up there in northern Norway, courtesy of Birk, who was one of the participants in the uh, kind of masterclasses uh, I was working on up there. And for the genre tombola section, we had the brilliant Lawrence Francis, a.k.a. L.K. Francis, whose uh, Christmas EP I hope you've been listening to since the last episode. And Lawrence took us through a kind of social history, I suppose, of emo pop, alongside the musical history and the musical elements that go to make up the genre of emo pop. And then, of course, he made an amazing um, emo pop track uh, in collaboration with ChatGPT on the lyrics called Black Roses, which is a very uh, entertaining tune. A lot of people have been really enjoying that. And uh, some people have asked if they can download that from anywhere, if they can check that that track out. Uh, And so firstly, I should say you should go and listen to LK Francis and his fantastic Christmas EP, as I mentioned earlier. But also, yes, you will be able to listen to that and lots of other things, including extended interviews, uh, full kind of unedited interviews, views and there's gonna be lots more resources as well on my new patreon page which i launched last episode so please head over to originofthepieces.com that's originofthepieces.com or go to patreon and search for steve pretty origin of the pieces and you'll find it and uh, you can sign up for five dollars a month or four pound fifty a month in the uk i think it is and that just helps to support the show but in exchange you get all of the unedited interviews and songs and all that sort of stuff So if you want to dive a bit deeper, that's a really, really good way of doing that. There's a lot of really interesting stuff coming up, which I think is going to be ending up, uh, the unedited stuff is going to be ending up on the Patreon page. So lots of fascinating deep dives there if you want to. Now, speaking of deep dives, today we have a slightly different format for the show because coming up later on, we have an incredible guest, one of my favourite musicians in the world, actually. Now, you may remember that after our dive into emo pop last episode, I was allocated the genre for this episode of what I called Solea, um, but which I've subsequently learned is called Solea. Um, and it is, of course, a flamenco genre. I say, of course, but actually I knew next to nothing about flamenco and the different uh, genres. And so I was thinking to myself, who can I talk to? It'd be great to be able to talk to someone if I could. Someone who's got a real knowledge of flamenco and world music more generally, some of the links that it might have with other parts of the world. Someone who uh, ideally plays a flamenco instrument, may say the guitar, for example, a flamenco guitar, that would be handy. And what it would be really good if I could get someone who's got an amazing pedigree as a composer, as a music producer, maybe someone who's recently released an album which has been all over the radio. Someone Is there anyone who's just done a big... Albert Hall gig for his album release, I wonder. Hold on a minute. 
there's one person who fits this bill, and that is Nitin Sawney, who's a fantastic flamenco guitarist in his own right and very knowledgeable about that world. So that's right, the one and the only Nitin Sawney is my guest coming up later in the show, so do stay tuned for that. That's right, the sleigh bells are out. They're in my trumpet case. It can mean only one thing, that it is Christmas time. That's right, you don't need me to tell you that. I know it is everywhere and has been for months. That's just the way things work these days. And as a musician, that can be quite frustrating. A lot of musicians end up doing a lot of Christmas gigs. You can't put these down quietly, by the way. Just once you pick them up, that's it. And going to gigs on the bus or the train or whatever, people just think you're in a permanently festive mood because they rattle around in whatever bag you're carrying. Anyway, um, yeah, as musicians, it can be a frustrating time of year because you end up doing the same tunes, playing the same carols, playing the same, uh, you know, hit Christmas songs. And although that music is great, I particularly love the traditional carols. There's some really beautiful melodies and harmonies there, which maybe we'll look at another time, maybe next year. And of course, there's some great Christmas pop songs, R.I.P. Shane McGowan, of course, Fairy Tale New York, many people's favourite, mine included. Now, I've been very lucky over the years. I've been involved for a very long time with the comedian Robin Ince's fantastic festive shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People. Um, and also some of the bigger shows we do at the Hammersmith Apollo and Royal Albert Hall with Brian Cox and co. Uh, they're always really fun shows. They're always really uh, amazing lineups of comedians, musicians and uh, scientists and the like. Uh, and uh, yeah, over the years we've done, my friend Steve Thompson played the laser harp for the opening of a couple of them, which was a lot of fun with the band that I put together. Uh, we played with The Cure, we've played with uh, Eric Idle, all sorts of things. Um, we, the astronaut Chris Hadfield, I've uh, done tunes with him uh, several times. In fact, spoiler alert, you might be getting a little bit of a Christmas present courtesy of me and Chris Hadfield before Christmas is here. But what I wanted to do for you today is something that I did in a show that I did with Robin in 2020, uh, which was, of course, the pandemic year. And that year, rather than doing a big live show, we did one 26-hour-long show at uh, King's Place in London to a very small audience, all you know, socially distanced and mask-wearing and all the rest of it, and to an audience at home uh, on streaming, which was really interesting, just me and Robin uh, locked in King's Place for 26 hours um, with the producers there. We obviously went slightly insane, but that year, because I was there musically solo, I had to come up with some creative ideas of how to make that work. Um, And I wanted to do a very silly thing, which I've been enjoying dabbling with over the years, and that is the great Steve Reich, wonderful minimalist composer, composed a piece called Clapping Music. Now, what this is, is music based around something called phasing, now, the easiest way to understand this is perhaps uh, visually. It's quite a simple concept in a way. If you, pay, if you put your two hands together, just fingers touching, thumbs touching, turn them around so that you can see your fingers all splayed out. Now, if you just shift your hand, shift one hand, say the top hand, over by, you know, a couple of uh, millimetres, and you can see that then suddenly those five fingers that were on top of one another then suddenly subtly shift, right? They shift and they fill those gaps. And then you could shift them the other way and they fill the gaps in a slightly different way. And so that's a very kind of simplistic way of understanding 
phasing music, uh, which Steve Reich uh, really pioneered in the in the classical world, which is a big feature of many global music traditions in, for example, Indonesia with gamelan and all sorts of other uh, cultures across the world use this. I think it's fair to say that Steve Reich didn't invent it, but he uh, probably popularised it for the Western tastes and the Western classical tastes in particular. So it's a wonderful piece, clapping music. It's just a very simple pattern, which is this. That's all it is. That's the basis of the entire piece. And then what Reich does is just shift that around. And I realised that this... You can set words to that. And those words could be, for example, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And out of that, you get these incredible patterns emerging. It's kind of hypnotic. It's kind of crazy. I did this at the 26-hour show I mentioned at about 4.30 in the morning. Solo, I use a kind of loop pedal to loop the first round, and then you can hear it evolving from there. So if you put headphones on for this bit, you'll get the best experience, but it will work as usual from any speaker, of course. So this is my festive take on Steve Reich's clapping music now it is it's it's fairly hypnotic so i suggest if you're able to just tune your brain into it for a couple of minutes i'd love to know what you think of it uh, do drop me a line on social media or wherever else um now i did this in one go i will put the video up online to prove it as a result it is not perfect so for those uh, purists amongst you well for those purists amongst you the fact that i'm saying merry christmas happy new year will already have completely ruined it but for those people listening closely you'll notice I do go a little bit out every now and again but it was tricky and it was late and I was tired but here we go festive clapping music by Steve Reich with lyrics by Steve Pretty Merry Christmas Happy New Year Merry Christmas Happy New Year Merry Christmas Happy New Year Merry Christmas Happy Merry Christmas, happy new year. 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 
survive that yeah uh i may have gone slightly insane i think it's fair to say merry christmas happy new year right on to the next section of the show now if you've listened to the show before you'll be aware that i often break down the episodes into kind of different chunks there'll be a chunk called entertaining noises in which i ask the uh, guests uh, in question to give us a kind of sonic tour of their instrument or to talk about something really particular that's kind of an entertaining noise in some form or other and then there's another section uh, on some episodes called music theory where i look at music theory and try and demystify it and make it less scary and help people to understand how you know the nuts and bolts of music work a bit more Um, and then also I do the genre tombola which is where I examine the genre that I've been randomly assigned by the internet that episode but this episode was slightly different because my guest today is Nitin Sawney. Now, if you don't know Nitin's work, I suggest that you check it out. He has an incredible back catalogue of albums, which were very, very influential on me and many others um, a few years ago. And his recent work is incredible as well. His current album, Identity, which he starts touring next year, in which he did a big Albert Hall show of uh, a few weeks back, is really great. I urge you to check it out. He also scores a lot of fantastic TV and films and all sorts of stuff. He's a real musical polymath and because of that our chat kind of flowed in a way that was hard to categorize into those different sections of the show so instead i'm going to let the interview pretty much play out because we cover a lot of fascinating ground that goes into a lot of those areas now this chat is perhaps a bit deeper than some of the chats we've had in the past there's a few musical terms bandied around which i didn't have time to kind of stop and explain at the time i should say the beginning of the interview there's a few of these um, which are then explained later so if you if you start listening and you think oh i'm not sure i get this please just stay with it for a little bit and most of those are explained if they're not please get in touch and we can cover things in future episodes a little bit of knowledge about music here is going to help you but if you don't have that hopefully it's uh, accessible enough for you anyway and there's lots of beautiful playing from knitting on the guitar and lots of uh, fascinating chat about cross-cultural influences and the way that music travels and evolves so I think there's something here for everyone as I say it is a bit deeper than we often go but I just couldn't resist letting you have all of this brilliant insight from Nitin so here we go my fantastic guest in his studio in Brixton it's Nitin Sawney so can you tell me about your background in flamenco to start with well it's interesting because I I grew up 
with I've talked a lot about my dad's record collection, which was an amazing kind of smorgasbord of kind of incredible diverse um, music from all around the world and um, he was he was really into flamenco um, but one particular album I really liked and it was it wasn't even a Spanish guitarist it was a guy called Philip John Lee who was from Norwich <laughs> but he but he um, uh, he was a brilliant player and he used to play a lot with Paco Pena and uh, toured a lot with him and had a had a great knowledge of flamenco um, and I used to listen to that album a lot and just think, how the hell is he doing that? Years later, a friend of mine, um, who's passed away now, but we, we saw that the same guy, Philip John Lee, <clears throat> had advertised in, um, in the paper, uh, I think it was The Guardian or something, that he was actually teaching flamenco up in, um, uh, up, uh, in around Earl's Court. And so we, we commuted up every week for a while and got some lessons. And, uh, and it was really interesting, kind of, you know, he really got me into understanding a lot more about uh, the form and so on, and, uh, or, the, or what flamenco is as a, as a musical form. And, um, and yeah, from then on, I was kind of hooked into, into flamenco and, and got into, later on, got into Paco de Luthia. Um, I remember also kind of being amazed when I, years later, when I met uh, flamenco guitarists about how a lot of the flamenco guitarists like Pepe Bichuela and um, Jose Miguel Carmona, they would actually talk about how uh, flamenco originated from India. And I was mm. like, really? Um, but I, I didn't really get that until I saw a film by Tony Gatliff from 1993 called Drom, which means safe journey in Romany. Um, and he talks a lot about how the music, um, the flamenco form originated in Rajasthan. Mm -hmm. I mean, they even have castanets there. Mm. And... Um, you know, with the gypsies from that area. And, and it kind of travelled over um, through Turkey um, and, and picked up Moorish traditions as well and Moorish influences and into Spain. <coughs> the form that you were talking about, Soliar, is actually, which means loneliness and solitude. <coughs> My voice has just gone. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's a beautiful form. It's very emotional um, and it works very intricately with dance as well, which flamenco does, and also with, uh, the, with the singers who can improvise and express themselves over that form. But the form itself is, um, is a really beautiful form, and I, I, I've just always been fascinated by all these different beautiful uh, forms within flamenco as a, as a genre of music. And so Solia is one, one of <coughs> several... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have, like, for example, I mean, they tend to be in 12-beat cycles, I mean, uh, like Bulleria... Or um, which is which is similar in terms of the compass. The compass is actually the the cycle in India. We have what's known as the thal. I guess it's kind of the equivalent in Western classical music or jazz as the time signature, but it's more intricate than that. It has a almost a poetic basis to it, you know, or a groove to it, yeah, and and the structure um, within India. I, I, uh, Indian classical music, I say. Uh, poetic basis because it's you can you can speak the rhythms mm -hmm. um and and you can speak the the tal which is the equivalent of compass so it's kind of the time cycle within which the form works and um and it's interesting because you have in india the 12 beat cycle is known as ektal mm -hmm. um uh you know which which is spoken in a certain way and has certain syllables associated with it and in within uh, flamenco you have bulleria you have uh um, Soliar, and you have, you know, you, you have quite a few uh, forms which are in the 12-beat cycle. So that that rhythmic structure that you're talking about, uh, mm. yeah, again, that, you know, the commonality with India, but is, is mm. it also, that's the sort of the case with the melodic cycle as well, right, in terms of the mode. So, again, we, yeah. 
just to preface this by saying we don't assume anyone's got any knowledge about what mm. modes are or you know yeah, yeah. theory or anything. Yeah. So would you mind talking a bit about <laughs> about the modes and about the the structure of the the scales and things within flamenco and also I guess if that relates to to Indian ragas and stuff. Yeah, I mean it does in the I mean you have what's known as kind of Spanish Phrygian mode mm. which is where you have um I mean, <laughs> yeah, to get into it a little bit, I mean, you, you'd have, you have what's known as the minor second, w which is very uh, integral to how, um, uh, how, you know, forms like Soliar and Buluria work, uh, where they really establish um, this sense of tension, mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of between the root and the, and the second uh, notes up in the, in, in the scale. So the scales themselves, I mean, when I say Phrygian, um, you know, to, to explain that, yeah. that's a displacement of a, of a scale, um, you know, to the third degree, but it, I, I won't get into it too much. But in Indian classical music, um, that's known as Rag Perbi, mm -hmm. for example. Which, so it has a kind of, in, in India, it has a very sad um, connotation to it because of the minor second. Mm -hmm. um, so you have certain forms, like, for example, there's a romantic form in India, uh, which is called the Heer. And um, uh, if you if you know about, um, I mean, if you take uh, Romeo and Juliet, mm. um, Hiranja is a very similar story. It's kind of, in fact, lots of different cultures have this similar story. Um, in uh, in in Ireland, it's Hanishi Gordon, and mm. there's lots of different, uh, you know, different ways of telling the story across the world. But it's it's essentially the story, the tragedy of the woman heroine in the story, which is a which is a Sufi poem mm. um, by Varish Shah. Um, and it's kind of, and it has this kind of melancholic feeling to it, which is the same in Soliar as well. That minor second really establishes that, and I think the Phrygian mode definitely has a melancholic feel to it. It definitely does. So, <clears> just a, a very quick explainer on the Phrygian mode. One way of thinking about it uh, is to think, if you're looking at thinking about a piano keyboard, if you start, if you basically start a scale on the E, right? So, if you just take all the white yeah. notes, you yeah. start it on the E rather yeah. than on the C. For people who know piano keyboard, mm -hmm. you get that. So, would you mind just playing the for G mode on the guitar. Well, I'm, I've got this tuned here oh, okay, at the yeah. moment, so, so it's kind of a. Um, but um, but it's kind of like uh, the way it would work. So so you rightly said um, if you started on the E, you would be playing all the notes of 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 um, C major, mm -hmm. um, and and so you can see that there's a minor second, but there's also the minor third in there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of. Um, so you would actually have. I mean, uh, at the moment I'm playing because I've got my, I've got my capo on my guitar, mm -hmm. so I'm going to play an F sharp. Yep. Um, so, so if I started here, I would be playing. So um, I'm not playing it piccato. I'm just going doing that, um, just simply using my finger like a plectrum at the moment. But so when you say yeah. piccato, piccato, piccato is when I play. Sorry. So that's like using uh, using two fingers oh, um, to to play, which is alternating um, when you're playing. The first <laughs> time I, I actually just played it like a, using my fingernail as a plectrum. Mm -hmm. So it's a different technique, and that's not a flamenco technique. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, but but yeah, I mean that that scale you can hear. I mean, so you have that minor second, like as opposed to in in the major scale. Instead, you have. Mm -hmm. So here's the tension. And here's the here's the melancholic aspect of it with the minor third. So you know that kind of idea is very intrinsic to um, to flamenco and also Indian classical music, um, particularly with the rag berevi. Mm, mm, mm. Because because the rags, rather than thinking perhaps in 
so much in terms of chords, where you have one chord moving to another. Mm. You, you think more in terms of melodies and the, the, you, you're working within that mode to create a kind of a mood and a, an atmosphere within that mode. Rather yeah, than of yeah I mean, well, to get into it a little bit, if you yeah. want to, because I, <laughs> I know we're talking about Soliar, but I think because it's related to Indian classical music and it originated from that. I mean, you can talk about the... Um, uh, the idea of the rag, it, well, rag itself means colour, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's about moods, a bit about it's also about seasons, it's about times mm-hmm. of the day, but also it's more than a mode or a scale because it actually, I mean, I guess like the melodic minor, you know, it differs ascending and descending, mm-hmm. but it's also got there's a lot more to it because you have um, you have kind of uh, you, you have specific specific rules relating to how certain notes. Uh, can be played bef- bef- before and after each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are lots of rules around that to keep the to keep the character of the rag. Mm-hmm. But also, there's um, there are a lot of ro- rules around um, not only how you can play a rag within um, within the the notes itself, but also the time signature. Mm-hmm. So, <coughs> like flamenco, you have very strict time signatures, and then you have to you have to stay within those. Apart from when you play the beginning part. Uh, which is called a LARP. Mm-hmm. We know that as rubato mm-hmm. in, within Western classical music or within uh, flamenco, that can be, uh, yeah, that can be, you can have a rubato section within a soliar, for example. So although there are these strict time cycles, you have freedom of expression. And within an Indian classical rag, um, when it's performed, you will start with the LARP, mm-hmm. which is the the exploration of the rag and the exposition of the rag, um, which is a gradual thing. And... Um, and you kind of manifest the rag in a way. And then from there you have the uh, uh, which is the slowest tempo. Uh, from there you go into Madhya, which is the middle tempo. Mm-hmm. And from there you go into Druth, which is the very fast tempo you'll hear at the end of a rag. So in a performance you'll hear all of these sections, the alarp. And, and it's kind of a sense of building. Um, something that I think also exists within flamenco as well, this sense of building um, tension and building power and excitement within the context of... Of a, of a performance. Mm. And before we leave India, can you just talk about this, the instrumentation of flamenco? And again, yeah. uh, you know, obviously the, how that relates to <coughs> India, because I'm right in thinking, am I, that it's guitar-led, obviously, mm. and vocals and castanets or, or clapping, hand percussion. Yeah, and cajon. You know, cajon, well. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's guitar-led, definitely, as Solia is very much guitar-led. Um, but, yeah, you have... So, to understand the compass as well, you, you have... Um, uh, you'll have the time signature. So, so the so the the emphasis. I mean, I've got a, an example here um, where you have uh, the um, the emphasis is going to be on the um, on the third beat, on the sixth beat, on the eighth beat, the tenth beat, and the twelfth beat. Now, within Bulleria, that's the case as well. But what happens is that they are um, the the beginning point of the compass is on the 12th beat with Bulleria, whereas with Solia it's on the one. So it kind of differs in that respect. Um, but there are there are a lot of other differences in, in, in terms of the form itself. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, for example, if you listen to this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. See, just I like think. that. So, so it go, goes around like that. So it's kind of, so it's just about understanding the, the way in which it, uh, the the form works around that particular cycle. So that that pulse is quite by by standards of the way we think about you know Western music most of the time. That's it's quite complex sort of scaffolding to build to build the rhythms um, around, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is and it is and it isn't. I mean, you know, within, for example, I mean, it's nowhere near as complicated as Indian classical no, music is no, rhythmically. Sure. I mean, you know, within within Indian classical, I mean, I keep going back to that, but I mean, within a solar form, you know, the 12-beat cycles, you will have um, what's known as falsettas. Mm-hmm. So you will have uh, very, um, you'll have phrases, I guess, musical phrases that will work within those cycles. Whereas within uh, Indian classical music, you will have much more complicated mathematical structures mm. um, known as the highs, for example, where they will, um, you'll have a phrase and it'll be repeated three times landing on the first beat of a given cycle. But uh, the cycles can be 10 beats, 17 beats, 11 and a half beats, whatever, you know, and it gets more and more complicated and the greatest exponents of, of that are, for example, the doubler players of, of North India. They're incredible players who, and also the Carnatic musicians, but it's actually about um, understanding where you are within the cycle so that you can improvise um, a mathematical structure uh, from wherever you are in the cycle mm-hmm. that's always going to land on the one. Mm-hmm. And that is so complicated it's to do. Complicated. Yeah, and, uh, and the, the people who do that best are phenomenal mathematicians yeah, as well as great players. Yeah, absolutely. But coming back to the instruments, yeah. so you talked about the percussion um, and the, the mm. castanets, and vo- vocals are a very important part of it. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. obviously you've got the uh, flamenco guitar here, and yeah. the, the guitar isn't an instrument you would immediately so associate with kind of tr- traditional Indian music. But no. there, there's a lot of commonality. Although there. there's people like Shri, um, uh, Vishwan Mohan Bhatt or also uh, Yush Srinivas, who's passed away now. But, um, you know, he um, he was very influential on people like uh, George Harrison mm-hmm. and so on. Carnatic uh, you know, musicians tend to pick up any instrument and turn it into Absolutely. an Indian classical instrument, yeah. like Kadri Gopalnath with, uh, with the saxophone. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so you have... You know, it's it's because the form is so powerful in itself, and the and the understanding of it. Sometimes you'll have a violinist teaching a bansuri player, which mm-hmm. is an Indian mm-hmm. classical form of flute, which mm-hmm. is like a bamboo flute. But you know, so so it's kind of in a way. I mean, these are folk traditions that have turned into classical uh, yeah. forms, like flamenco has as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, um, it was interesting because you know it took time for people like Paco de Lucia to really have to to really um, get flamenco recognised as a classical form. In fact, in, in the early days of... Uh, I mean, people like Andre Segovia actually said that he wanted to take uh, the guitar away from the noisy hands of the flamenco guitarist. Right, At the right. time, he had a real... He didn't respect flamenco mm-hmm. as a form. He just thought it was a noisy folk tradition. Mm-hmm. Whereas, actually, it's uh, it's been elevated a great deal by people like Tomatito or, or Paco de Lucia mm-hmm. to being a really respected uh, classical form. Absolutely, but and also that like I'm kind of interested in the journey of more traditional Indian string instruments mm. into the guitar because flamenco guitar has got that set. It's, it's played quite differently, and it sounds it sounds very different from the way a lot of people play guitars. Right? Yeah. It sounds a lot more like uh, different Indian string instruments, sitar or yeah, uh, or yeah, the sarod or something like that. Yeah, I mean there are lots of I mean with the with flamenco guitar there are lots of techniques that you don't see in any other style um, of guitar playing. I mean, for example. Um, the way the tremolo works, um, you know, when you're actually playing a tremolo, it's a it's a five string mm. kind of movement. So if I play a falsetto that's from Soliar, it'd be like this. have something like that which is actually kind of like it's um when i say five strokes it's one two three four five 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 
also wins play fast. Wow. And it's kind of interesting because you have the similar, uh, you have similar kind of techniques with the Santur, mm -hmm. which is a, a hundred stringed, or I think it's even more, um, uh, mountain instrument played by uh, great um, uh, musicians, Indian classical musicians like Shiv Kumar Sharma. Um, but you know that that's that's one technique of flamenco. But there are so many different ones. You know the uh, the way in which you will tap on the instrument itself. So it's using the full. Um, body of the instrument mm -hmm. as part of as part of the sound, you mm -hmm. know, and and technique. Um, also, you have um, you you'll have this kind of way of um, of strumming, which is kind of like um, um, you know, you'll mm -hmm. have kind of very fast strumming patterns and so on, which are which are unique to flamenco as well. And um, so there's lots about flamenco, and, the, and then like I said, the pac uh, picado technique, mm -hmm. which. Paco de Lucia was very famous for, which I, I showed you earlier, is kind of, you know, just a two-finger technique of how you play the scales and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's, there's a lot that's unique to flamenco technique um, that you really don't get in other forms. Um, I mean, like, there's, um, I mean, rumba technique. So there's different rumba techniques. So that'd be... So... So you mm -hmm. have these kinds of um, techniques like that, but then you also have, um, I mean, it's, it's, there's so many different things. I mean, like you know, different ways of tapping as well. You know, lots of, lots mm -hmm. of ways in which you're using the wood. With the bulleria, you, you, have, um, you have different kinds of um, strumming patterns. So mm -hmm. there's lots of things like that which are kind of um, patterns, and that's within 12-beat cycle as mm. well. But like uh, the solar patterns are kind of more. So so they they kind of um, they differ, um, you know. But it's it, they're all falsettas within the the compass within the timing itself. I mean, with a bulleria pattern, is um, it will get it, you'll you'll be. 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, so 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, so it's like that, and so it keeps you off balance because it starts on the 12, yeah. whereas with, uh, with the Soliarts, it's the same pattern, but it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, so it starts on the 1, but it's kind of, it's the same thing, but it's just how you, how, where the emphasis is. Mm. There's, there's a lot, I mean, it's hard to explain it all like no, this. No, no, that's, I mean, that's but, really, really helpful. That's but really... They're, they're kind of, um, you know, they're, they're, all these techniques are really beautiful, and I, I grew up loving them all, kind of like, um, you know, the, this idea of even tapping at the same time as playing a string. Mm. So it's like... So these kind of, so um, I guess it's kind of, that's called golpe, where you actually, at the same time as, as plucking the string here, you're actually tapping with that, with, with your with your ring finger or yeah, whatever. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's kind of, um, there's lots of things like that. And like I said, this kind of idea of, you, you know, your fingers becoming almost like a fan. So... Describe yeah. that as a, as someone just watching. So you've yeah. got your thumb, your right hand. You've got your thumb resting on yeah. the bottom string. And I'm flicking out from my little finger. Mm. But then you have like you can do the same with your hand. 
So. So. Which is the same kind of thing, but it's kind of that's um, that's kind of um, rasgada. So it's kind of a different uh, different technique of how you play with your hand and with your fingers. I I kind of love all of that because it's actually really using. Um, every aspect of what the guitar is, I guess. Absolutely, well, and that that thing that I mean, you you, you see it, even sort of indie singer songwriter types, you know, banging mm. the guitar as percussion. Mm, mm, and mm. I, I think uh, that's caught on now, but it's a different thing. I mean, the way a yeah, lot of, of people course, are doing yeah. that now is quite is quite massively different. But um, but just in terms of in terms of understanding the guitar as a as a percussion instrument as well as a as well. Yeah, as exactly. A, yeah. yeah, and I guess I mean that's not what I was playing there early on. <laughs> Technique isn't isn't really strictly flamenco, but what it what it is is it's very much my own kind of adaptation of mm-hmm. it um, in terms of how I'm tapping. But but at the same time, it kind of works, and it, it's it's part of um, that's part of a piece by Paco Pena, for example. And like it, sometimes you can improvise and create your own uh, ideas around things, but it's not strictly flamenco what I played because flamenco is it's a it's music with real tradition at its heart right mm-hmm. but it's also you're talking about it, it kind of evolving yeah and is that something is that tension between creativity in terms of you know in bringing new things to it and also tradition and sort of honoring the tradition that is it is there is there a tension there or is that no well uh, yeah some some purists would actually say i mean for example paco de luthia and tomatito really brought in a lot of jazz harmony mm-hmm. in the way they play i mean um paco de luthia very famously played with john mclaughlin and with uh, aldi Mola mm-hmm. and and um and was a very experimental guitarist as well as a brilliant f- traditional flamenco player and so it was hard to argue with him because he was so good <laughs> yeah, tra- at the incredible. traditional form i don't i think everyone was in awe of him yeah. and same with tom and tito um so i think there are there were some people who are purists who think you know it's about the pure form but i think since um Peck de luthia um really uh, did his thing i mean you know i remember talking i mean sadly pepe habitual is no longer with us but he had a lot of classical finesse in the way he played um, uh, guitar, but combined with um, incredible technique and speed. I mean, these guys play or practice for like 14 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, you know, Paco de Luthier was raised by his father to be the world's greatest guitarist. Mm. His dad actually had said to him, I, don't, I mean, he took him out of school so that he could just play mm. guitar. So, I mean, literally his whole life was mm. spent playing guitar with the intention, deliberate intention, of being the world's greatest yeah. guitarist. So, it's a bit like this yeah. Mozart story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, his, so dad, his dad's sort of hot-housing him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of thing. But, I mean, you know, it's, it kind of worked because his, his Picardo technique was unbelievable at the speed of a pneumatic drill. I mean, mm. it's, and mm. the power, you know. Mm. Um, and this is the thing, you know, with, when you have a great guitarist like that, it's just incredible, um, incredible technique and power. That tension between the creativity and tradition is mm. that, that that these things have evolved over time. So the, the, the show, the, the podcast, is called "The Origin of the Pieces" as a sort of nod to you know uh, evolution and, and the yeah. origin of the species. And, and and I think I'm just always really interested in how music evolves from one place and and the geography of it. You know, moving from one place to another, it's going to evolve as it passes through those different countries, different yeah. influences coming. I in. mean, totally. I mean, the the thing is that this idea that are, there are pure musical traditions, I don't really believe that at mm. all. I mean, everything influences everything. You know, so um, and and everything evolves um, organically in different ways. You know, um, but I I think I mean for me. Um, 
with flamenco it's it's it, you know this idea that tradition means being intransigent about evolution uh, or just saying okay it's got to be static that's not the case i think every great tradition is dynamic and constantly is evolving and moving i think people are scared sometimes to actually uh, interfere with um with what they see as traditional but i mean even pandit g ravi shankar you know who's considered you know by many to be the you know most famous indian classical musician had a lot of stick for you know for for the fact that he um he was quite unusual in the way he played i mean there are different traditions and styles of sitar playing for example there's the kyal style where people like vilayat khan um you know he was an exponent of that which was a vocal tradition of playing um and it's um, and and it's the same actually with um with flamenco a lot of players will be much more into a slow kind of um more uh, moorish tradition of playing as well so some people will play flamenco very differently mm-hmm. to others mm-hmm. uh, there's a track called heresica latina which yes, is actually that's, from that's displacing the priest from, sorry displacing yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so that was yeah i was playing a little bit of that that's that's actually by paca uh, peña mm. but i actually mm. kind of adapted mm. it yeah i mean that's uh, sorry A little bit of that, but I mean, that's kind of um, that's a really lovely little piece, and yeah, I mean, that, that it's just a really beautiful form. But also, um, it was interesting because I played a lot of jazz and uh, jazz piano and classical piano and uh, different styles of piano, and um, flamenco was a really nice kind of break from some of that because it just had a had a ferocity and um, and beauty and grace, and it had so many. Uh, but it was all about passion. That's mm. what I really felt about flamenco. There's a real passion to the playing. And there's a link with dance, of course. There's yeah. There's a really strong link with dance. Well, I mean, you know, it's also interesting because um, with Indian classical dance, you have um, different classical forms like Bharatanatyam and Kathak. And a lot of people say that um, flamenco is very influenced by Kathak as a form because there's a lot of quite intricate footwork mm. um, with, um, you know, with Kathak dance. You can see that, and I, and actually, people like uh, Akram Khan, um, who's a brilliant, very highly trained Kathak dancer, I used to work with a lot. Um, he actually has worked quite extensively with flamenco dancers too. So, I mean, you know, like I said, that within the twelve-beat um, cycle that I just mentioned, say Bulleria, which is as I said, twelve, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. If I if I were to uh, speak that in uh, with a um, Ekdal pattern, which is also a 12-beat cycle from India. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. those those kinds of syllables I'm saying are actually how you would strike the dabla, mm-hmm. which is the Indian, uh, main North Indian classical form percussion. Um, they tell you how to strike it because it's an oral tradition. And both of these things, Indian classical music and, and flamenco, are oral traditions initially. So they've just been taught and handed down. Mm-hmm. And that's why they were folk traditions initially. But, you know, as um, people have kind of finessed how they work and so on, they've become, uh, they've become classical forms mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, like, um, piano for me is actually, it's, it's great because it actually allows me to... Um, to understand 
the shape and the context of everything mm. and it's it's um it's i think i would recommend to any musician to have at least a basic understanding of the piano just because it really contextualizes everything harmonically and melodically and rhythmically you can it's an orchestra in itself and that's why i think i mean i orchestrate a great deal using mm. the piano i wouldn't really do that using a guitar mm -hmm. so it's kind of you know although andre segovia said that the guitar should be like an orchestra in mm -hmm. itself but i i think you know in terms of practice pragmatic thinking mm -hmm. you know a, a piano uh, enables you through midi and so on to to actually create um orchestral pieces as well but also i think it's just it's a color-coded instrument so we yeah. were talking about it earlier yeah. you know we, we yeah. talked about the limits of of thinking purely in theoretical terms mm. uh, uh musically but also it is really handy to be mm. able to just go okay what's this mo phrygian mode that sounds complicated yeah. Yeah. the flat and second and that yeah like yeah it's c major starting on an e yeah you know, it's, yeah it's sort of and it's good when you say c major because that's probably the easiest way to understand modes is display scales and if you if you just play c and then you go up um you know for starting from the d or the e an octave at a time mm -hmm. so if you're playing um you know d um from from d just playing on the white notes then you've got dorian mm -hmm. mode you've got phrygian mode you've got mixolydian mode lydian mode um you've got aeolian and uh, locrian mode so you've got all these modes going up um you know seven modes um going up the scales um, and it's it's easiest to understand that when you look at it in relation to the white notes. Exactly, exactly. And it's all about context, isn't it? Yeah. Those because it's all they all contain within that one major yeah. scale. The set, yeah. These seven modes, but yeah. they have. It's all about how you contextualise the sound of it. Yeah, and, and and it applies to anything. You know, it applies to understanding. You know, modal playing. Also, you know, obviously when you're doing that, then you know that within, uh, if you were to go up the notes of the major scale then you you'll come across um three minor chords mm -hmm, and yeah. and within each of those that the the all the white notes are going to work and so if you reverse that round you, it means that you know um you've got three possible modes that are going to work against any minor chord so it's kind of there's lots you can learn from just looking at as you say color coding and just playing with the white notes exactly so it's, you know, again we've talked about the, the the limits of of music theory and how it's not always the best way to think about music but it's mm. also this for this sort of thing it's an yeah. incredible shortcut yeah. so people think of it as a kind of thing that's imposed top down on how how music should be mm. but in this case it's about understanding that actually this little bit of theory understanding you know how modes work and the, the fact that it's all contained within one scale can yeah. just suddenly uh, for me when i was learning as a teenager mm. the minute i got my head around that it just unlocked so many totally. things i mean I, I don't think you can really be a jazz pianist for example mm. jazz musician without understanding modes and understanding how that works and then you know getting into the relationship between mm. the two i mean but it's the same with um you know, there, there are equivalents as well. I mean, if it's the same thing when you're trying to connect up different music from different cultures. Um, you know, if you're if you're making connections. I mean, when I'm working with Indian classical music, because Indian classical music is played in a in a linear way. I mean, so it's it's um, the rags are played against drones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, rather than keeping them you know against a, a rug being played against a drone sometimes i'll i like to shift the ground underneath the rug so i'll allow somebody to maybe or, or i'll invite somebody to play or sing a rug first of all and then i might shift no, um, chords underneath them mm. and it totally changes the feeling and mood and context of what they're doing yeah. and i think that's really interesting mm. decontextualization mm. um is only possible through understanding and having an awareness of how different forms work yeah yeah absolutely uh, yeah Fascinating stuff. The, the, the shows are sort of about, you know, again, about the origins of music, about where music comes from, why it mm -hmm. exists, and how, how, yeah. how it's important. So I guess the question I want to ask everyone is, what 
for you is the is the point of music, which is a very difficult, you know, open ended question. But what's the point of music? I actually did a whole TEDx talk about what is the point of music at one point. Perfect. But I, I, I guess I mean uh, the point of music. It's interesting this because um, uh, Albert Einstein and Rabindranath Tagore many years ago um, asked the question uh, whether the um, whether a particular statue, Greek statue would be beautiful if no one was around to see it. And I kind of think that music is the in intrinsic language of the universe. We happen to have the privilege to be able to tap into it. Um, even Beethoven talked about this uh, in, in uh, 1816. You know, it's kind of, um, it's, it's fascinating when you, look at, um, when you look at the nature of what music is. Um, I think we are witnesses to it and we discover, we discover it. I think music is there. It's, it's part of the fabric of reality. And I think it's, um, it's, what, it's one of the things that binds the universe together. Mm. It's, um, so for me, um, the point of music isn't necessarily the right question mm. in a way. I think the right question is, um, is how can music enhance our lives, which it does. And, and I think if we, if we then talk about the point of music, I mean, it's... it's you know, it gives us so much joy, pleasure, and it also does that for the animal kingdom, which mm -hmm. I discovered when I worked with Chris Backham, for example, mm. um, where we looked at whether animals actually could derive pleasure from music as well. Um, you know, we as as a human species can derive a lot from music, but music doesn't need us. Mm -hmm. Music's already there, <laughs> and it's part of what binds the stars together and galaxies together. And you know, it's it's part of dark energy and dark matter. Probably, mm. it's kind of it's just so. It's so much, um, part, you know, my cosmic microwave background radiation, um, you know, has, has a sound, has frequency. Everything is, is kind of related to, you know, radio waves. I mean, mm. so, so, you know, if we look at sound and music, um, Johannes Kepler talked about uh, the music of the, uh, well, he talks about um, Harmonices Mundi, which mm -hmm. also was derived from Pythagoras talking about um, music of the spheres. Mm -hmm. So there is so many ways of looking at sound and music and the point of music. Um, uh, animals use sound for communication, survival, reproduction, um, but they also can use it for pleasure in the same way we can do. So I guess it gives us so much, but I don't think that's the point of it. I think it's the point of it is that it's just intrinsic to the universe, and its its point is something that we could probably never really understand. Mm, I think that's yeah fascinating. On the uh, Harmonious Mundi thing, I uh, do a show with the astronomer Chris Lintot. Oh, right. We do a thing called Universe of Music. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say about because I think scientifically, that in, in terms of like planetary motion being yeah. harmonious and things, there's mm. actually, actually what's Chris's point is that that's actually not really the case in many planetary systems. Mm. And recent mm. recent research has been um, has revealed that uh, it, there's exoplanets, so there's planets orbiting yeah, stars yeah, all, yeah, over, yeah. Yeah, all over the universe, which is mm. quite you know we didn't really realise until mm. the last few years. But there's one system in particular uh, that's about I think it's about 900 light years away right. where they found where it is it is harmonious. So oh, right, there's okay. a, a harmonious system. So right. Chris and I do a thing which we'll quick brief plug from listeners we'll be doing a uh, Wilkins musical on the 20th of January Chris is mm. going to be mm. a guest with me we'll be talking about this a bit um, about this exoplanetary movement where every time mm. planet A goes around once mm. planet B goes around three times and so mm. it's sort of the harmonic series basically yeah, 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 yeah. You know, right. in planetary yeah. motion yeah, so it's yeah. really I mean this is what Kepler was talking about but you're right he, he was he was found not to be correct mm. in, in that respect and I think Galileo's father actually talked a lot about this as well And mm. there's, but I mean it's when you get into all of this, I mean, 
you know, you, like I said about Pythagoras, I mean, he talks about music of the spheres, but he also took, he was the one who really, I mean, the reason I can play this is because, you know, guitar is because of Pythagoras in terms of understanding strings and, mm. um, and the vibrations of strings and, and the um, different intervals that come mm. from, you know, you know um, half the length, if you're half the length of a, of a string, then you actually get the octave and so on, mm -hmm. and um, understanding harmonics and, and everything, but also dissonance and consonants and how intervals actually can make us feel uncomfortable or, or happier. And, and that works even with chimpanzees. You know, they've found that there's part of the brain called oscillatory, well, it's oscillatory phase lock where they'll actually become disturbed by dissonant intervals in the same way we do, but probably even more so. So mm. it's kind of, you know, there is this idea that certain intervals um, actually make us feel uncomfortable. I mean, there's this idea of the devil's interval, for mm -hmm. example, in medieval mm -hmm. times where it was a kind of um, sharp fourth and it's kind of, this um, this idea that there is something uh, there is something in inherently good or bad or or mm. sad or tragic or whatever or, or happy in certain intervals is kind of something that's built into our DNA. Mm. Could you just play the devil's so the the, the augmented fourth? Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, as opposed yeah. to the the perfect fifth. So. Uh, oh. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. I mean, it, it does feel quite. Yeah, it does feel quite ominous. It does, but it, yeah. it goes back to what you say about the flat and second that in in the in um, uh, so yeah, the yeah yeah, yeah tension, that's the kind yeah. of slight tension. Yeah, yeah, but. and I think that's the thing. I mean, different. I mean, you know, football fans when they're singing, will we will go. Yeah, they'll 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 kind of you know they'll sing minor intervals automatically. Mm. Um, and I don't know why that is. It's a tribal thing, you know, sometimes, but they'll go to something quite sad mm, automatically mm, as opposed mm. to a happier interval. Um, you know, and I don't know why that is, but, you know, there are, there are certain intervals we gravitate towards in different contexts. But I think something I've talked about quite a lot on the show is the fact that music is able to express things that we can't necessarily in words. So it's not necessarily always a question of happy or sad mm. or light, you know, light or dark. It's yeah. like music is is the grey area in between those things, yeah. which is what makes it interesting. You yeah. know, it's not, yeah. If it's purely happy or purely sad, that's, that's, you know, that can work as well, but it's all the stuff in the middle yeah. that we can't really, as like complex emotional And beings. that's where the ROG system comes in, because it's actually much more than even the mode system, modal system. I mean, within Hindustani music, you have 72 basic ROGs <laughs> and you'll have 10 darts, um, but within each of those, there's, there are subtle ways in which the um, the intervals will work to kind of express an idea or a feeling. Mm, mm. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Cool. So interesting. Yeah. You've got a new record out, just briefly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, um, well, the new album's called Identity. It's out on Warner Music. Um, we've released a few singles from it. It's, it's really um, a celebration of people's identities. I mean, in the time where I think there's so much um, said and written about... Um, about people's identities, where it is othering them or judging people for who they are. Um, I really wanted to have a platform where I could invite a lot of artists that I admired or thought um, had something to say to just come and express their identities um, without that kind of judgment. And I think it's worked really well. It's fantastic. It's a really great record. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks Cheers. Very much nice appreciated. one. Okay, cool. So my thanks again to the fantastic Nitin Sawney. Such an interesting conversation covering a lot of ground. We went quite deep, quite technical in places there. I hope that was all right for everyone. Love some feedback uh, on whether that was too much or whether you'd like even more, more technical stuff. Of course, if you want to go deeper with any of this stuff, uh, there's the show notes with some links to listening. Uh, so a lot of the artists that Nitin have mentioned there are going to be in the show notes but also there's the Patreon which you can go to originofthepieces.com 
or you can find it on Patreon itself uh, if you type in Origin of the Pieces or Steve Pretty. And there, as I say, I'm going to be putting up all sorts of resources, the full unedited interviews, uh, a lot more in-depth stuff there. So if you want more, if you're hungry for more, go there. But also just generally let me know if that was sort of pitched right or not. I'm really keen to kind of go deep with some of these things, but equally, I don't want to leave people behind. So uh, yeah, do let me know. Right, it's that time in the show. It's time for the genre tombola. So let's find out what I'm going to be listening to for the next two weeks over Christmas. Um, so reminder here that I take the list of 1,300 music genres on Wikipedia, stick them into a random list picker and see what we get. So I'm going to put it in now. And we've got nothing more Christmassy than this. It's UK Hardcore. That's right, I'm going to be spending the next two weeks over Christmas listening to almost nothing but UK hardcore. It's the most hardcore time of the year. <laughs> Woo, hardcore. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do let me know. As always, sharing uh, is really, really helpful if you can do that on your social media or better still in person. Do recommend it to a friend who you think might be musically curious. It really helps still if you can leave reviews. So star ratings and reviews, that really is very helpful for getting the word out. Now, I have this show coming up, Wilton's Music Hall, on the 20th of January. And the guests I can announce the... Special, special guests that I've just added to the bill are the Filament Choir, an amazing choir of both professional and amateur vocalists coming together. It's a really beautiful thing that uh, they've set up there with Filament Theatre Company. Um, They're going to be coming along and singing. And again, reminder that we've also got some of the Hackney Colliery Band guys there. We're going to be reworking some of our material, previewing some new stuff. Uh, Valeria Clark, the harpist who was on episode two, um, is going to be there. We're going to be playing our soundbox duo. Chris Lintot, who I mentioned in the interview with Nitin. We're going to be talking about universe of music, so planetary systems in musical orbit. It's going to be a varied and amazing night in, I think, probably what is one of the best venues in the UK, Wilton's Music Hall, on the 20th of January. Tickets make very good Christmas presents, so (laughs) roll up for that, 20th of January. Meanwhile, thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you just after Christmas. The next episode is on the 28th of December. I think I might drop a little Christmas treat here. As I mentioned earlier, there might be a little astronaut music-based treat coming your way just before Christmas, so do check your feeds before then. But meanwhile, thanks again. Uh, Stay musically curious and uh, see you next time. Bye. Christmas, happy new year. Merry Christmas, happy new year. Merry Christmas, happy new year. Merry Christmas, happy new year. Happy new year.